this morning, I'll be reading the scripture passage from Genesis 3, verses 14 to 19. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall, bring, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Maggie. Great job. Morning, church. Would you pray with me? Father, you have said, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this morning, we simply respond to that, Lord. We pray that you would write your eternal word on our hearts. Cause us by your Holy Spirit to walk in your ways. Be our God, and we will be your people. In Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. So have you all heard of the butterfly effect? Does that ring any bells? Not the movie. I'm not talking about the movie, the butterfly effect. The theory. Butterfly effect is a theory that states small, seemingly trivial events can have massive consequences. One of the reasons it's called the butterfly effect is because the artistic representation of the theory, it looks like this. I think we have a slide. It looks like a butterfly. This is like a mathematical theory in art form. Now, another reason it's called the butterfly effect, because according to the theory, the flapping of a butterfly's wings, let's say somewhere in Central America, can actually cause a tsunami in the Philippines. So the theory says, the butterfly effect, small events, massive consequences. I think it's hard to find a more powerful illustration of the butterfly effect than right here in Genesis 3. I mean, can the bite of a piece of fruit really be that big of a big deal? So I've been vibing with Augustine lately. Augustine, he's becoming like one of my heroes. And Augustine wrote in one of his books, it's called The City of God, and he's talking about the massive consequences for sin. Listen to what he says. 
Who can describe, who can conceive the number and severity of the punishments which afflict the human race? Pains which not only follow those who do evil, but are a part of the human condition and the common misery. What fear and what grief are caused by the death of loved ones, by fraud and falsehood, by the crimes of other people? For at their hands we suffer robbery, captivity, chains, imprisonment, exile, torture, mutilation, loss of sight, the violation of chastity to satisfy the lust of the oppressor, and many other dreadful evils. What numberless casualties threaten our bodies from without? Extremes of heat and cold, storms, floods, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquakes, from countless poisons and fruits, water, air, animals. What person can go out of his house without being exposed to all kinds of unforeseen accidents? Returning home safe and sound, he slips on his doorstep, breaks his leg, and never recovers. What can seem safer than sitting in a chair? Eli, the priest, fell from his and broke his neck. Whether it's ancient history, the times of Augustine, or current events, or our personal lives, you know and I know that our lives are full of all kinds of pains. Pain that began right here when our first parents took a bite of a piece of fruit. Small event, massive consequences. Now for the past two weeks, Kenny and Shelby have unpacked this term grace for us. And today, we're looking at the consequences that God has brought into the world because of sin. And we might rightly ask, where is the grace in that? It's here, but we just got to do a little bit of digging. I'm going to stick with the illustration from last week and tweak it a little bit. Whenever you mention 1.7 whatever billions of dollars, you have everyone's attention. Let's say that you're the holder of that lotto ticket. You won. Okay, the number's been called. You got the ticket. You won. In a split second, you are wealthy beyond your imagination. Right? That's settled. That's justification. The moment we believe in Christ, the debt of our sin is completely wiped out. Like, no more sin debt. And simultaneously, all of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ has been credited to our account. Settled. But you know that if you won that billion dollars, it would take you the rest of your life to learn how to manage and steward and act according to the wealth that you just received. See, we all think that life just becomes totally easy when we get a whole bunch of money. It doesn't. Challenges you and I never had to face now become ours. We have to learn different ways of thinking. Life would be very different in a lot of good ways, but there would be many things that we would need to learn how to do, challenges that we would need to learn how to overcome, responsibilities that we would need to learn how to manage for the rest of our lives as we stewarded this wealth that we've been given. 
That's sanctification. You see, there is a difference between our justification as Christians and our sanctification as Christians. Justification happens in a moment when we believe in Christ, we're justified. Praise God. But that begins a lifelong process of being sanctified by God, being changed by God, growing and maturing in godliness. Another way of saying that is we've been saved from sin's condemnation and we are being saved through sin's consequences. We're saved from sin's condemnation and we're being saved through sin's consequences. One of our favorite verses, we all love this verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification. But we're still in this world. And all around us are the effects and the consequences of sin. And the normal process that every Christian goes through is the process by which God is teaching us and training us and changing us and delivering us and saving us and sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus. That lifelong process is called sanctification. Now listen, my experience has been that this distinction between justification and sanctification causes a lot of angst in Christians. If I'm truly a Christian, why do I keep on repeating the same sins over and over and over again? I feel so defeated. And I actually wonder, am I really a Christian? There's a lot of people right now that are deconstructing. People who we would have looked at and looked at their lives and, and said, wow, these people, these men and women, like they sincerely love Jesus. They're serving Jesus. They're believing and preaching the gospel. They're not doing that anymore. They've, they've left Jesus. And, and we can tend to think, well, if that happened with them, who's to say it won't happen with me? Or what's up with this long period of spiritual dryness or trial or depression or overcoming trauma and tragedy in my life? Like if God really loved me and if he's really in control of all things, why is this happening? Am I really his? And will I make it to the end? Many Christians, and myself included, have a very tough time seeing the grace of God when life is really hard. And sometimes, sometimes people give up on God and they say, this Christianity thing, it's just not working. Because oftentimes our expectation is different from what the Bible actually says our lives are going to be like. We have this expectation that the Christian life is going to look somehow in some way and the moment it begins for long periods of time not to look that way, we're out on it. But the Bible could not be more clear. One of the very 
main purposes that God is doing in our lives is to change us to be more like Jesus. So when we're sinned against, we learn how to forgive. That's hard. When we sin, we learn how to repent. We have joys and we have trials. We have ups and we have downs. And God, through his sanctifying grace, is changing us and making us more like Jesus. But when our goal and anticipation is different than God's, life becomes very confusing. It becomes very hard. But we have to understand that the same grace that justifies us is the grace of God that's sanctifying us. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at three ways that the grace of God shows up in the consequences of sin. Okay, so these are the grace, this is the grace of God and the consequences of sin. I have three of them, happiness, humility, and hope. Happiness, humility, and hope. We're going to take them one at a time. Happiness. Notice how the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin fall to the very places where God's blessing was meant to come into their lives. Motherhood, marriage, and vocation. We looked at this already. These things came all before the fall. These were God's primary means of bringing his blessing into the man and the woman's lives. These were good gifts. But now each of these blessings would be mingled with pain. In verse 16, it says that in pain, Eve would bring forth children. Now, certainly this involves physical pain, which is excruciating, so I've heard. I read that in a book, I think, somewhere. But you ladies who have given birth know that usually childbirth and the pain experienced is temporary. Usually. But there are emotional and psychological pains of motherhood that never end. There is something about a mother's heart for her children that is unique. And even if you're not a biological mother, there's something about women that you instinctively and genuinely and uniquely have a love for children. You just do. And so with a unique love comes a unique pain. When a child suffers, the mother suffers with her. When a son or a daughter is far from God and destroying his or her life and destroying relationships in the family, there's a unique way that the mother's heart aches. When a child dies, it can very much feel like part of the mother has died with him. Children are a blessing from the Lord, but from this point forward, that blessing would be mingled with pain. And there is a type of pain so deep that no earthly comfort will do. It's a comfort that we can only find in God. Marriage. Marriage was meant to be this harmonious relationship. We looked at this, right? Men and women's roles. They were gifts from God. But now this perfect harmony would be lost. As a consequence for sin, Eve would now desire to rule over Adam, conquer him, compete with him. 
And I don't need to convince any of us that there are all kinds of conflicts in marriage now. And it's not just the woman's fault. Tending the garden and enjoying the fruits of his labor, this was supposed to be a blessing for Adam. It gave him dignity and purpose. This was supposed to be enjoyable. But now he would work the ground and eat with pain. Does any of us know anything about job stress? Yes, of course. And let's just pretend for a moment that you do land your dream job, like you're working your bliss. You know and I know that there's part of every single job that you don't want to do. Work is a blessing, but it's also a pain. All of these consequences remain in our lives. And do you notice that even in the good things of life, you still have a sense in which, meh, How many of us have ever felt super bummed out on Christmas morning? Like, be honest, right? So much hype, so much anticipation. I'm 40, 45, 45 years old, and I still can feel, like, depressed on Christmas. What's up with that? But you know what it's like, right? The gifts are all open, and you didn't get what you want. And so all the anticipation that's been building up for months is like you're so deflated. Or even worse, you actually do get what you want. And by the end of Christmas break, what happens? You're bored with it. And so what do you do? You go on the hunt for the next thing to make you happy. So some of you younger kids, I've got some bad news. That's going to happen a lot to you in life. You finish the degree, you land the job, you find the wife or you find the husband, you buy the house, you take the vacation. And if we're honest, even these good things, which are all gifts from God, they still leave us feeling like, nope, that doesn't do it for me. I'm still not satisfied. Where's the grace in that? See, I think such a huge part of our sanctification is getting this lesson. Huge. Sanctification is the process by which Christians are increasingly turning from good things to the giver. And whenever you feel the pain or some kind of ache or some type of dissatisfaction, or some type of longing that's still not satisfying you, and you begin to turn from that thing in God's direction, what is that? That's grace. God himself is turning you even from good things to the giver of all good things. And in him alone, you find the satisfaction that nothing else in this planet can give to you. Like there's a reason why Jesus uses the metaphors he does when he says, I am the bread of life or I am living water. Whoever drinks of me shall never thirst. There's a reason why he says that because in Christ alone and in him alone are we truly satisfied. C.S. Lewis says that God's gifts, they're like beams of light coming in through the cracks of the roof. 
So picture yourself for a minute and you're in your backyard and you're in your shed that has no electricity. And through the cracks and the shingles and the plywood there come these beams of sunlight. And because you're in there moving around stuff, there's probably like dust trickling up and down the beams. Now the beams are great. They're giving you a little bit of light in your shed. But it's far better to go outside and bask in the full warmth of the sun. Far better to go outside and see the sun illuminate everything around you. And what C.S. Lewis is teaching us is you got to follow the beams back to their source. That's a huge part of the Christian life. Because only when we know the true source of all blessings can we even enjoy the blessings in the right way. These are, not, these are gifts, they're not gods. And when we know the giver of all good things and we find our total satisfaction in him alone, only then can we enjoy things in the right way that they're meant to be enjoyed. Does that make sense? That's a huge part of the Christian sanctification. Are you feeling the pain of loss this morning? I know you are. I know there are some sitting in this room that feel an acute sense of pain over significant losses you've experienced recently in your life. And I also know there's many in here that are feeling disillusioned, disappointed, dissatisfied in some way. Could it be that God is inviting you into a deeper relationship with himself? Is it possible that God is asking you to stop clinging so tightly to that thing, whatever it may be, even a good thing, that you might hold fast to Christ? Is it possible that God is actually showing us grace to turn from the, the gift to the giver in whom we find true satisfaction? Now, how do we do that? Well, how do we cultivate any other relationship in our life? We spend time with God. We respond to his invitation. If Christ is inviting you to come into a deeper relationship with himself, then just like in any other relationship in our lives, we pursue that by spending time with him. We spend time reading his word. We spend time listening. We spend time doing the things that we feel like God's calling us to do. We spend time with mature believers and we, we hear through the, the worship of other people what God is doing and we draw near to him. These simple ways can teach us over and over again to find our true happiness in God alone. That's the first grace that we see in the consequences of sin. Happiness, true happiness, is found in God alone. Secondly, humility, grace of humility. By the grace of God, we learn humility in the consequences of sin. Now, Adam and Eve both sin in this fundamental way. They disregarded the word of God. And that's explicit in verse 17. God says to Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you didn't do what I told you to do. You listened to the voice of your wife. Now Eve, she did the same thing. She listened to the voice of the serpent, but Eve was deceived. Adam wasn't. Eve said, eat this. And he said, okay. He rejected the word of God. That's what sin is. When, when the clear will of God is revealed to us through the word of God and we go another way and disregard it, we're sinning against God. 
Now, underlying Adam's sin here is a selfish passivity, like he could not be bothered. All the while, his wife is dialoguing with the serpent. I don't know, maybe he had a long day in the garden. All he wanted to do was check out and relax. He totally abdicated his responsibility. Men, we know about this. We tend to crave ease, and in our laziness, we bring pain into our marriages. We know about this. But look at how his choice to relax actually landed him in the very opposite of places. Adam got to freely pick from any tree in the garden except for two and eat and enjoy. And only after he sinned did he have to go and sweat and work hard and, and labor for the fruit that he had freely been given. So Adam did have it easy, and by his sin, he made life hard. God was teaching Adam in this moment a painful lesson. Adam, be humble. I got you. I've set this all up. I know you. I've made you. I know how to lead you and guide you. Be humble. Trust me. The first year that Vicki and I were married, I worked with a guy. His name was Mike, a single guy. And one afternoon on his lunch break, Mike did his taxes over, over his lunch break. I never did my own taxes a day in my life. But when I saw him, I thought, if he can do it, so can I. Now, the year that Vicki and I got married, I lived in three different places in two different states. So I transferred my employment. I was a supervisor at UPS in Albany. I transferred to the UPS Westchester. Then I left that job for a different job. So three different W-2s. And unlike Mike, I was filing married jointly, right? Whatever that is. <laughs> married filing jointly. Vicki too had moved. She moved from her apartment in Philadelphia to Westchester. She changed jobs. So you see where this is going, right? So I called her and I said, hey, um, I'm going to hang around after work. I'm going to crank out our taxes. I'll be home in like an hour. And I was. And I was. And to be straight with you guys, I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was like, dang, man, new husband, you know, killing it. Isn't Vicky lucky to have a guy like me. Once we started getting letters from the government, Vicky wasn't feeling so lucky anymore. <laughs> Guys, I had jacked things up so bad that it literally took us years to clean up my mess. So much so, for the last 19 years, Vicky has done our taxes. Like, I've permanently been fired. Like, she doesn't let me anywhere near a computer come tax season. So in my pride, in my naivete, I acted hastily. I thought I knew more than I did. If he can do it, I can do it. I was humbled, right? And through that humiliating process, we experienced, that, that, that experience taught us, you got to do your taxes a lot more carefully. Isn't that the way consequences are meant to work? 
Humbling consequences are part of our sanctification. Hebrews tells us all about this. God disciplines those he loves. And the discipline process, guys, you know as well as I do, it's not fun. It's painful. (laughs) No discipline is pleasant, but painful. But not because God is a God who just likes to see us squirm. That's not who God is. That's not his nature. That's not his character. The Bible says that the reason why God's disciplining us is so that our lives in the future would bear the fruit of righteousness. So far from God discipline being an indication that he's done with us or he doesn't love us or doesn't even like us, on the contrary, the discipline actually shows that we're his. It confirms to us his love. If you're a Christian and you've never been disciplined by the Lord, that's unusual. Because all good fathers discipline their kids. And God, being the good father, will discipline us for our good. This is a huge part of our sanctification. Nothing abnormal is happening to you if you're being disciplined by God. He's saying, I love you. Humble yourself before me. So hear that invitation. Christian, hear the invitation from Christ this morning. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Draw near to him and he will draw near to you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I mean, don't our experiences prove this point to us? Don't your experiences, am I the only one that has made a mess of things when you've just done things your own way? I know I'm not. But alternatively, haven't you also experienced that when you've humbled yourself before God and did what he was calling you to do, there was a sense of peace and joy in that, even if that thing was hard. You know that. Vicki and I are thinking a lot about our future right now. Not, not because we're going anywhere, but just, you know, as the kids get older, we're just thinking about what life could look like up in the future. And probably just like you, when we dream, we dream of things that we would like to see happen. Like, I would like to be more financially secure. I would like to be more flexible in our schedule so if our kids, let's say, move out of state, we can go visit them and help them and serve them in some ways. And we've got some adventures, just like you, that we still want to take. And so usually these daydreams, they happen while we're walking our dogs. And so I'll just be like ranting and raving and going off on these tangents. And every once in a while, Vicky will kind of like stop and look at me and I know what's coming, right? And she'll say something like, you know what I'm going to say, right? And I'm always like, yeah, but don't say it. Don't get all spiritual on me. Just let me drive in my imaginary Corvette for a little while longer. But she'll quote to me a verse, and this verse has been a guiding verse all our lives. And she's a thousand percent right. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know and I know whenever we've put God as our number one priority and we've humbled ourselves and have done according by his grace, according to what his word has taught us, there has been a peace and a joy and a settledness about us. But I know from my own personal experience and pastoring some of you that whenever we don't do that and we put other things before God and we disregard his word and we arrogantly do things the way we want to do them, we make a mess of things. 
And so the grace of God is not, he's not punishing us. He's turning us from difficult situations that we've gotten ourselves into and trying to train us humbly to walk in his ways because he loves us and that's where good comes into our lives and the lives of others. This is a part of our sanctification, friends. His grace is all over this passage. If we'll look hard enough and understand the ways that God works, he's growing us. The same grace that justifies us is the grace that's sanctifying us. All right, last one. In these consequences, God is teaching us happiness. He's teaching us humility. And finally, he's teaching us hope. Look back at verse 14. Hey, dude, can you hand me that water right there, Mason? Thanks, dude. Verse 14. God's talking to the serpent, and he said, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Now let your eyes drift down to 17. He's talking to Adam now. You should not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Notice that the serpent and the ground are cursed by God, but never the man or the woman. There's no hope for Satan, right? And there's no hope for this physical world as we know it. Both Satan and the physical world as we know it is going to be destroyed. There's no hope for those. But there's hope for mankind. Now God said that the man and the woman would die, and they did, but we know that they lived for hundreds of years after this. So were their lives marked by pain? Absolutely but they still enjoyed a lot of good things together. They still ate and drank together. They still had intimacy. They were able to see their grandkids like for generation after generation. They enjoyed a lot of life. Have you ever realized that even when God does bring consequences in your life, they're not as bad as they really could be? That's grace. This is the hope that Adam and Eve lived with. Yes, we messed up. Big time. But God hasn't given up on us. He has not given up on us. Church, that's the same hope that we have. The hope of Adam and Eve is our hope. Who but the Christian can really say, surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our hope. Do we sin? Yes. And should we repent? Absolutely. But is our hope in this life that somehow we're going to perfect this and somehow we're going to escape the consequences and the pain of sin? Never. That's not our hope. And true biblical hope is supposed to have a motivating aspect to it. And so an illustration. Let's say you're starting a business. And it's just a slog, right? Late nights, early mornings, and every time you look around you, everybody out there is having a great time in life, but you're not because you're grinding. But let's say somehow there's a guarantee to you that you're going to be successful, guaranteed. So in three years, you're going to start to see some real profits. In five years, 
you'll have a staff. And in 10 years, you will be able to sell your business for more money than you can ever imagine. The certainty of that hope that is in the future is meant to function for you today so that as you grind today, you know that something better is going to await you. You see how that works. That's how hope is supposed to function for the Christian. Yes, life is hard. The sanctification process is difficult, but we have something secure waiting for us and it's a better life. Adam and Eve lived on, right? They experienced real trauma. Just read chapter four. Their oldest son murders their second born. Talk about a messed up family. That's traumatic. They lived on. And I'm sure they, just like we, knew the ache, the ache that says, how long will this go on? How long will we be in this world that involves cancer, and suicide, and wars, and car accidents, and the thousands of other things that frustrate us on a daily basis. How long? What if that ache is God's grace and a signal to us that we were made for a better world? I hope the Phils win the World Series. I just woke somebody up. I hope my mechanic says that my car passed the inspection without having to pay a whole lot of money. I hope Vicky gets me that sweet pair of rock climbing shoes I want for my birthday. <laughs> Friends, it's not the hope I'm talking about. There is no better certainty for you than the hope that was secured for you through the cross and the resurrection. Why didn't the curse fall on Adam and Eve. The curse fell on the serpent and the curse fell on the ground. Why did it not fall on Adam and Eve? Because it fell on Jesus. See, the hope that they had and the hope that they lived with day after day, it was based on a promise. It was based on God's word. A seed would come and that seed would crush the head of the serpent. And Galatians tells us that Christ is that seed. And in 3.13 it says Jesus was cursed for us. He redeemed us by the, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's what our hope is built on. It's built on the solid truth that Jesus lived a life we could not live. He died in the place of sinners. He experienced the full wrath of God for your sin and mine, and then he rose again from the dead. That's a finished act. That's what our hope is based on. Christ is saving his people. He has saved us and he is saving us still. He's maturing us, he's growing us, he's sanctifying us, and he will complete the work that he began. Christians ought to be a people of hope. Yes, the consequences of sin remain, but the certainty of our eternity with Christ gives us the motivation we need to get up tomorrow, pick up our cross, and keep following Jesus. The butterfly effect. Small event, massive consequences. Could a baby born to poor parents in a barn really be all that special? 
Could a carpenter's son teach us the ways of God? Could a naked man dying on a cross thousands of years ago have anything to do with my life today? We know from the scriptures that many people during the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, and at the death of Christ, they, they went on living normal lives. They ate, they drank, they slept, they went to work. The things that were happening with this guy, Jesus, were no big deal. It's still true today. Jesus, for most people, is no big deal. But for those with eyes to see and ears to hear, something massive is unfolding all around us. The plans for a new heaven and earth have been laid. Christ, the Lord and King, has risen from the dead. He's conquered sin, he's conquered Satan, and he's conquered death. He's building his kingdom even right now through the preaching of the word, the preaching of the gospel, and the power of the spirit. And he's coming soon to set up his eternal throne forever. He will judge the living and the dead. He will cast into hell all who reject him. And he will welcome all who trust in him for their salvation and trust in him alone. And forever and ever and ever, he will be our God and we shall be his people. Friends, we're a people that are secured and sanctified by his grace. Praise God. Lord, we thank you this morning. Sometimes it is hard for us to see when life is difficult and the consequences of sin remain. We don't always see and apprehend your grace. And so I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to comprehend and to see and to trust you, even when it's hard. Lord, our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in you. And so would you continue to meet us day by day with the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Amen.